0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today I am thrilled to have with us, Ross Gates. Ross has had many roles within The Near Foundation, ranging from growth all the way to massive expansion in every direction. Most recently, he is leading Prime Lab, which has had a lot of success recently with more than 2 million new accounts with an experiment that we'll be diving into shortly. Welcome, Ross.
1: Thanks, AVB. Great to be on the show. And yeah, happy to answer all those burning questions.
0: Nice. I always struggle a little bit with introductions. I feel like I should probably do more preparing for them. So perhaps if you have anything to add about your background or how you find yourself to be in this interview today, how you would like people to perceive you within the near ecosystem and I guess crypto
1: more broadly. Sure. So everything that I do is for growth. It's for getting more users into the ecosystem and expanding the amount of time they spend on uh, the activities that they're doing. So the different apps are going through, the different platforms, et cetera. So when I first came into NIR, my background was really started in robotics. I always thought I was going to be an astronaut when I grew up, went into marketing because I built a lot of stuff and I got patents that no one ever saw the light of day because no one knew how to talk about. And so I figured that it takes more than just engineering I'm gonna go out and figure out how to talk about the cool technologies that are being built so that when they exist, we can get them to the right audiences. Coming into the Near ecosystem, I'd worked in growth, doing exactly that for the previous uh, years and came into Near to understand, okay, what exists here that has the most potential to go far forward? So during that time, during the first couple months at Near, I, I helped out Ref Finance. We worked on a marketing conference called Generation Crypto to get more marketers in to help all the ecosystem projects. And then really went the more product-led growth route of Prime Lab and figuring out how we can make an ecosystem of experiences that everybody wants. The general how Prime Labs got started is we took 160 ideas, we shot those out to 250,000 general consumers that had nothing to do with blockchain to see what types of experiences they actually wanted. And then from there, we started building what they were asking for the most. So that's my role in here and happy to answer more.
0: That's amazing. No, that is, a, that is a really good overview. There's so much to unpack there. The first thing that caught my attention was robotics. It sounds really cool. I love that most of us at some point, I don't know why because Elon Musk wasn't even a thing back in the day, but a lot of kids dream of being astronauts when they're like little. So like I guess I'm really interested to dive a little bit deeper on what the robotics experience was like. Was that your formal education at university and where did you study? I guess, what were the pathways? available when you graduated and what stage of crypto was that and again what drew you into crypto
1: sure there's 20 questions there so let's start at the very beginning so what was my formal education i went to the university of connecticut with a mechanical engineer about a year in i decided that i actually wanted to do robotics and so i did mechanical and electrical engineering it wasn't really my formal education to do robotics i just walked into a robotics lab freshman year and said What do I need to do to work here? And they said, oh, we only have juniors and seniors. So I walked in six more times that semester until they hired me. And then worked on that for a couple of years. I ended up getting a bunch of grants and then during college programmed quadcopters, built them from scratch from components, built vision systems on those quadcopters so that they could guide themselves in for smooth landings under their own control by mapping the topography and figuring out where they could go. And that was just, yeah, you have questions. What's up? I was just going
0: to say, I we need to talk, I need to hire you because I was in Costa Rica recently and now I am getting ads on Instagram for these like private helicopters, which sound like a luxury thing, but traffic in Costa Rica is wild and there's so much to see out there in nature. So I was thinking, if I buy a helicopter, how do I manage a, a, and fly this thing? But if you can help me make it fly itself, I think we're down to business.
1: <laughs> if you want to put your life in my hands, we can do that. There is a lot of breakthrough stuff though, with helicopters that you don't really see in the news, but billions of dollars are going to eVTOLs, which are electronic vertical takeoff and landing, which is all about how do you take the quadcopter stuff that came out five years ago and make that scaled up enough to actually hold four or five people. And the advent of everything that Elon Musk that you talked about is doing with the batteries being super lightweight. The motors being electric instead of gasoline is allowing this to develop inside cities where previously helicopters weren't really a thing inside cities because they're super dangerous and they're filled with gas and they could light buildings on fire. These are coming out and probably going to change how we do urban infill.
0: It's fascinating. Yeah, The only thing I've heard about helicopters in like recent times is I can't remember her name, Martine something. She's been doing some math innovation around a lot of the biotech stuff like organ transplants, but also... She's been doing a lot of innovation around the transportation of these organ transplants and it's fascinating listening to her because she's like yeah you know when you like sit down and run the raw numbers there's absolutely no way why these like electric helicopters can't lift this much weight and travel x distances and speed so it's fascinating how you always see that i guess like adoption curve of where is it needed most okay organ transplants we can see an immediate need and probably the price point for it is there but well, it's going to be fascinating how the helicopters start trickling down to the more general population. And I had never thought about the risk of them being full of gas and then crashing being essentially the same as a bomb. But if they're electric, hopefully you can actually mitigate that risk and it could fast forward adoption.
1: Yeah. What's really funny is in L.A. alone, there's already 75 helicopter platforms on the tops of buildings, but they're for emergency use only for that exact reason. So if you have electronic vehicles that can go land on them, the infrastructure is already there. As far as organ transplants go, I'm not familiar with the exact person that you've described, but there's a company called Slingshot where they are doing exactly that in Ghana. A lot of it is also to do with uh, regulation, like autonomous drones. Nobody really wants them or, or they don't want to be the first ones because if something goes wrong, and I've seen this in programming, programming my own, I think just shoots up to hundred feet. It could come down on somebody randomly. This, the company that I described, they're starting in Ghana in the middle of the, what's called the jungle. And they are going over the jungle, parachuting different organs and blood transfusions and stuff to hospitals. And they, I think they have three stations that can get blood or organs to anywhere in the entire country in like less than 40 minutes or something like that. So with that advent, hopefully it'll come back to the U S North Carolina has the best laws for that. So we'll probably see it there next and then mass adoption.
0: Is that your home state?
1: No, but if I was still working on quad doctors, I would <laughs> totally live there. <laughs> I
0: think um, I, I recall as well, I never recall the names. I'm probably the worst at plugging people on the podcast, but there's this company, same. They are based in Australia, but doing some work in, I believe, in Africa. And they started with a very similar principle. So in Australia, we've got like the flying royal doctors or something. The distances are so massive that you basically have people that fly around regional, like very remote rural towns. They're basically like small planes or I guess like large drones. And it was like something like 200 mile radius and they basically fly in a straight line. And yeah, it's very useful when it comes to dropping off supplies or medicines or things that you may need on a regular basis. You don't really have the people or the staff or it's just too costly to fly someone in every time. But yeah, it's... I don't know, I, I get really excited. Uh, something about transportation gets me going.
1: <laughs> something about That's being able to going. be face-to-face with people, just like on the internet, you have uh, communities of affinity and a communities of location. You can combine the two now, you can have it so that we both care about crypto and we can quickly get to each other in a way that really isn't that expensive. Everyone thinks that owning your own helicopter is expensive. The expensive part is the utilization of it is very low. It costs millions of dollars. If you're the only one to use it, it's expensive. But as soon as you have these in an Uber type model, it might only cost twice as much as taking Uber to come see you very quickly.
0: And and it really depends on how people value their time. Like I I had to do this equation recently. I'm planning my next Mexico visit. Currently, I'm in Mexico City at an undisclosed bunker. Not kidding. Um, Where I'm staying, it's close to a main avenue and it's so incredibly noisy. Like I, I just published the last episode and I apologize to everyone, but I didn't realize at the time because I had the headphones on. You can actually hear the traffic. It's like madness, morning traffic. Like I was looking at the editing software and some of the aggressive, passive, well, it's not, there's nothing passive around, about it. Some of the honking, it's two and a half seconds. Like beep. I had to basically book the, the cinema room. This is meant to be like a movie room.
1: You are in a bunker that has bookable rooms. So this is a massive and I, bunker and there's multiple people in it.
0: And I'm, I'm just at a regular hotel and i feel like a cinema okay. room, which I've booked for the podcast. But the bunker story is way cooler, so we can keep that one.
1: <laughs> okay, I'd like to hear about that.
0: <laughs> what I was going to say is I was basically comparing the cost of flying, which is more expensive, but faster, and the cost of a bus, which is much cheaper. It's like a fourth of the price, but it takes longer. And yeah, it's a matter of are you traveling during the week? How much time do you have available? Are you able to work? waiting at the airport while you fly, are you able to work on the bus? Like it's not just a dollar value consideration. So I guess that with helicopters would be the same. If you can like suddenly remove traffic, that alone would make it much more valuable and maybe justify slightly higher dollar
1: prices. For sure. It's all of those things. I, I used to be I used to run an agency and people either have time or they have money. And the best way to market an agency is tell them exactly how you're gonna do it. Because if they want, they have the time, they'll just do it themselves and they'll steal your idea. But actually 99% of the time, people have the money and they don't have the time, they trust you and they'll just hire you to do it themselves. So it's the same thing. It's like, what's your trade-off? The money or the time it's gonna take to actually get where you need to go? It's
0: the psychology of money. I remember uh, working at a law firm in Sydney, very briefly, before I came over to the dark side. I couldn't understand how lawyers charge so much money. And admittedly, some people actually don't like paying those massive bills. But it was, at some point, it dawned on me that people pay you to take on the responsibility. And it just frees up a lot of, not just their actual time to deal with the issue, but the mental bandwidth. Like, it is no longer their problem. They just throw all that shit at you
1: and expect you to deal with it. And the same thing is true of blockchain auditing. I have a friend who was a blockchain auditor and he said, I don't do that anymore. Why not? Because when I wake up at 4am in the morning and I go, oh no, this use case, did I miss that one use case? I don't need that responsibility anymore.
0: Yeah, it is what it is. So, I've got some questions for you. Let's do it. So growth at NIR, I'd love to know some of the early experiments that you were able to be part of or that you were exposed to while you were within the foundation and maybe some early insights, especially how they would relate to different stages of growth of the ecosystem as a whole. And then we'll segue more into Prime Labs and today.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's all about timing. So the early insights of working at near was coming in and going, okay, I have a mandate to do marketing. It can be whatever I want. I need to figure out how to grow what already exists to more users. And those users need to have a use case where they can travel from one app to the next app, to the next app, to keep them engaged so that it's not something I do for five minutes, I fall off and I don't have a reason to come back early insights would be there's a difference between growth and finding product market fit. You can't actually grow a product until it has found product market fit. Who wants it, who your market is, what they're, what they value in the app that you're building. And then you can double down on that thing to provide that value that it's, that the app is giving to more and more people. So really coming in, the first thing was a lot of the products that I was helping, I wasn't really doing growth. I was helping them find product market fit, which was that earlier stage of refining their product. I made a list of all of the apps in the Near ecosystem that you could log into. And there was only about 25 when I started that you could log into with your Near wallet and take some sort of action. Of those 25, there was only about three or four that you could log in and take an action over and over. The previous ones were a journey or a story that you're being told. And once you finish that story, which might take anywhere from five minutes to 30 minutes, you've completed the entire product. So the the takeaway from that was, okay, how do we turn individual products into that ecosystem of experiences that have those viral growth loops where once you finish the product, it draws you back in or you give some sort of way for them to reach out to you so that they can let you know when the next process or when the next addition is going to happen. So that was originally what I faced. It takes us
0: right into frameworks for growth. And what I find fascinating is that in crypto, we actually have like multiple layers stacked on top of each other. I've, I've always enjoyed following uh, your work and chatting with you because back in May, when I started the Product and User Experience Guild, the way that I would have defined product market feed, I guess it, the focus back in the day was on near as a protocol, finding product market feed with the people that we're going to develop on it. So a lot of the effort would have been on developer tooling and on just amplifying the message of what the blockchain is capable of doing and really of bringing people in. And definitely later in the year, you start to see that tension between some people whose job is to just grow the end users, a number of wallets, number of transactions, that kind of side, and then just building stuff. And that takes time. So I guess it really depends which metrics for growth you use. If you look at the number of grants that we're handing out, if you look at the developers that we have, if you look at that technical side, we're doing extremely well, but that definitely takes time to trickle down to the end user.
1: No, I completely agree with all of that. There's a difference between looking at a metric that you need to change every two weeks and then asking, do we have the right framework for people to build on top of? Is there a way that we can take it from taking months to build your own product, to days to build your own product, to minutes to build your own product? And we're not going to see those users at first, uh, we're going to see foundational pieces that no one really can interpret. No one really sees the value of, but then at the very end, when all of them are available, it's going to come together all at once. And you're going to see an explosion in the ecosystem and you have to be willing to make that longer term investment to build those tools that people will build on top of that's one of the core things that we're doing at prime lab and kind of the, the tenant for it, you're all about user experience. A lot of the things to grow existing products is marketing campaigns, but you're going to pay more and more for marketing campaign to get users in if the user experience isn't there. If it's not viral, if it's not shareable, if it's not great. Changing the product requires a bunch of engineering knowledge. It required at the beginning when I came in, like the ability to program your own smart contracts. I did the the 10K, or I helped push forward the 10K uh, smart contract where you could- I'm familiar with that one. NFT series. I know you launched on it. (laughs) But that took two months to get out there. The goal is to, <laughs> with Prime Lab, to build a foundation where you don't have to know your own contracts. All you have to know is the front end, and you can launch on top of that and you can dip deeper.
0: Yeah, I recall at one point we were having weekly calls with the 10K team, technical product manager. You were coming in from growth, and I was coming in as the first project launching through Misfits. And it was just fascinating how we were trying to understand the technical requirements, everything from the royalty split to the way that the images were uploaded to IPFS and how they get presented to the user. And once you have that technical layer, then we had the user experience, which is just polishing the front end. And look, admittedly, we did have a very basic front end, but it's step by step, right? We had a front end website, which was open source so that anyone can use. So you can see how it's a very first step to reduce the time to market, but it's a never ending race, I guess. The, the the challenge that I see, especially with Nier, is that it, it is the only, if not one of the only uh, layer one blockchains that really enable people to build like really good user experiences, something that resembles Web 2.0. So then we've got a bit of a catch-22 between if we have developers coming from other blockchains, they have a lot of pre-established assumptions of what a crypto product is. And if they're building for existing crypto users, these users may already be used to the friction built in those products. So we may see new projects launching that are actually not leveraging to the fullest extent what Near can do. So I guess that where I saw my role back in June, and probably you see your role now, is how do we amplify what this can do? We need to set a new standard, a new benchmark for it. This is what proper user experience looks like. And I guess inspire people to use it. And in your case, because you guys are doing the actual technical heavy lifting, not only are you setting the example, but then you're also providing the technical components for people to take them and run with it. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, there's multiple things there. One is you have to set the new standard. You can't compare apples to apples, crypto to crypto. If you want mass consumer adoption, you need to start comparing yourself to consumer apps that have hundreds of millions of users on them. The best example that I, I like to give is, there's an app that I helped called Wombo app, was the ability to take a picture of your, you, generate an AI image or an AI video of that picture of you singing a song. I never actually worked with them. I made some prototypes for them, but in understanding how they worked, they were profitable from day one, and they went from zero to to 30 million users in 60 days. I think 30 days, maybe.
0: I think of Houston. I'm pretty sure yeah. I took my colleague's photo and I put it on a, on a song, I can't remember, it was one of the hilarious songs, and I sent it to him for his birthday and he almost died laughing. And yeah. it was the kind of applications where I think I even paid for it because they had a very smart growth loop whereby the free songs and the premium songs are right next to each other. So you can experiment with it with the free songs and you know that it works really well. And then you see the premium song, which is the one that you really want, and you're like, look, I'm gonna bite the bullet. It's not much money. But it's a really neat cycle of get the user in, they taste the experience, convert it, so to speak. And then you see the value and you're happy to pay. And it was like a couple of bucks. Yes.
1: You said exactly the thing that crypto needs is you have to make it so people can see the value before you ask them to pay. The trouble that a lot of crypto has is they ask you to buy some crypto to pay your gas fees before you even know what you're doing or what you're going to get out of it. So the ability to have free trials and get them to the value, that's really what you need. And that's what we're aiming for at Prime Lab.
0: And a big problem with crypto is that people are often trying to sell you as an investment. Like buy these, anything from NFT to a layer one to whatever it is, buy it now because it's going to be worth more in the future. And that may be true. I think that there's a very natural skepticism, especially from people outside of crypto, of what exactly is this investment? and Why is it valuable if I don't understand how it works? And I think it's very unconscious. Like at a very primal level, people understand that how could this possibly be worth more in the future if I don't understand how it works and this is presumably aimed at someone like me. And it's fascinating because you see the exact same opposite experience. If you show someone a project and they use it and it works really well. The first thing people ask is, do they have a token and how do I invest? It's every single time you go to a conference, you meet a team, if it works and it is clear that it provides value or in the early days, if it's clear that the team can execute and they've got a vision of how to provide value to a user. If there is a user anywhere in the equation, then the equation immediately flips and I think that's what we need to focus on near. Assuming early, everyone early stage has some skin in the game that have some tokens, whatever. If they want those tokens to be valuable, and that's what I love about crypto, all incentives are aligned, then we really need to focus on building something that people can use and that's when it clicks. The notion of building a decentralized cloud computing and it being the base for the future of the internet needs to be backed up with people using it and saying, holy shit, I can actually see this replacing X, or I can actually see this being a strong competitor to Y. So I think what you guys are doing, it's very valuable to, to help bring that message home and, and highlight some of the things that Nier can do.
1: For sure. Yeah. That's the basis of a lot of the apps that we're building. You said a lot there. The first thing though, would be trying those different experiences. <clears throat> You're not trying to sell the value of something is going to increase. You're just selling the value of using this today in this moment brings joy to you or lets you do something that you couldn't do before in a different way, like signing a document with a crypto signature where you don't need to know someone's identity, but you can still trust them based on their past, you know, what they've done in the past. They have their online identity. Or storing files in a decentralized file system, which is actually what we're launching next. It's called Web3 Cloud. And it's this idea that if you have an entire ecosystem of experiences, every single asset that you create, that you own across that ecosystem, Should be stored somewhere like a Google Drive, where you can then go interact, share, and see everything in one place. And you can even upload other documents. If those documents are all stored uh, on the blockchain, hashed like NFTs, with their location hashed like NFTs, then we can build a proxy server where those files are actually stored anywhere on the internet. We don't even know. A government could take down that proxy server, but because it's all on the blockchain, we can rebuild it from open source. You can always have access to those documents and Google drive. You pay, I pay like $10 a month for Google drive. You pay a certain amount to have access to that storage. Is it a token? No. Is it something else that's crypto related? Um, like, no, I'm not buying it for that value. I'm buying it because I can immediately see that this is a place where I can store my information and access it anywhere. And it's useful across everything else that I buy into all those experiences.
0: So usually in startup land, they say, I used to do a lot of like indie hacking and startups in general before going deeper into crypto. And they always say, especially if there's existing competition, that your product needs to be 10 times better than the competition or users really need to feel the the pain to make a switch or the value proposition needs to be like amazingly better. We can probably agree that the fundamentals for crypto are looking very good. The narrative towards decentralization. Everything from a war raging where both sides are embracing crypto, inflation in the West in a way that has not happened decades and it's more associated with like third world countries. Censorship, whether real or imaginary, it's now mainstream narrative. So I think that even a growing dislike of big tech and the way that they may be influencing all of the above, once you establish that narrative, you have a really good case for all these alternative applications. I would like to first, we don't have to get too technical, but I'd like to first maybe highlight some of the things in the NIR stack that you guys are leveraging and that may be unique to NIR as opposed to building in other blockchains. And then we can go into some of these more specific applications and use cases. I know that you've mentioned a couple, but yeah, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into those.
1: I got to actually pull up a list of those. There's you know, Terry picked the best ones. Cool. So what are we using near for near overall the technology is awesome. A lot of people ask, why do you use near as opposed to another chain? Well, you know, pick the chain that you believe the technology is going to be the best and you double down on that one. Near is a great user permissioning system. So that's what I'll say is like the very best, what we've doubled down on the ability that you can, let's say, so just for context, everything that we create in our entire ecosystem is de- default private. For all the prime labs applications which means if you own an nft unlike openc where anyone can see that nft click copy you don't actually really own it it own you own the hash on chain but anyone could steal it everything that we're doing is default private where it's encrypted with your wallet id with near such that if anyone else wants to see that nft you'd have to share it with them and that user permissioning of sharing that nft and having access or not having access is really great on near also the user permissioning of any app, if any app that we're creating wants to view your camera, view your files, etc., it's really easy to have that user permissioning for every single slice that could exist in an app on the near blockchain. Sound like you have a question. What's up?
0: I tried the NFT applications, but I'm not sure if I tried it um after it went on pause recently. Cause yeah, that was one of the questions that I had. I, I did notice that some of the information on the application seemed to be private or some hybrid between on-chain and and off-chain. So yeah, I'm a little bit curious about how that works. I didn't know if it was maybe like a
1: shorter-term trade-off just in the development cycle or if it's... It's not a short-term trade-off. It's actually, it's way more complicated to make it private than it is to make it public. So it has been an investment that we've been making for the previous months the so the trade-off like why do we want to make everything private there's a great quote that when everyone runs one direction run the opposite direction that's where great innovation is happening so everyone's making their nfts their images all public but what is it that allows art that allows social media experiences where you want to share with people and that needs its place in the ecosystem but also nfts are great for ownership of actual assets which we're not seeing a lot of innovation toward the other direction of what about the ownership of assets you don't want people to see? You, there's a lot of going through the, the news right now of people stealing each other's titles to the, each other's houses and taking out loans on those titles. What if you wanted to be able to transfer those NFTs on crypto, but really you only need to see it if you actually own it. What if you wanted to sign a corporate document and you wanted an NFT as that document and you could cryptographically sign it with another wallet to prove that it was signed? You don't want the whole world seeing that along all of those lines. Think of all of the tools that you use online that you pay for. softwares like Google Analytics or your Dropbox or anything like that. You don't expect all of that to be public. You expect it to be default private and you can still share it, but it starts off as yours.
0: Oh, I 100% buy into the privacy piece. I believe they reversed the decision, but not that long ago, there was a controversy with the payment processing platforms that OnlyFans use. And OnlyFans user base being mostly around the adult industry. So when that happened, there was a lot of ideas on how to potentially onboard OnlyFans onto the crypto world. And naturally, there are some issues both with people uploading content, because by default, OnlyFans is paywalled. You want to hide the content until people pay. That may not be the case if you upload everything as an NFT. But also there's a privacy component of... If you are the user of an adult platform, you may want to have that facet of your life isolated from the rest of the world. So I'm only in for privacy and obviously the adult example is always the edge one. It can be easily translated to anything in the business world, in the family setting, in just being default private. I think it's a good philosophy to have. What what I'm trying to understand is given the near infrastructure, which is a public blockchain and things... Mm. I guess, get eventually recorded on the blockchain. How does this structure look like to achieve that privacy?
1: You achieve that privacy through hashing. We're also creating, we're creating multiple things, but one of them is a user permissioning system. And one of them is a user persona system. User permissioning would say who has access to what files, but you hash the location of those files. So no one actually knows what those files represent. The user persona system that we're making is so that you can have one centralized place like the Apple iPhone, which is going to be our homepage, which is a Chrome extension. It's a wallet. It's also uh, an entrance to an ecosystem of experience. It's like our iPhone. So we have that. We want to be able to point people at different experiences they might like. If you go buy five dog NFT, the persona system would pick up on that because it's all on-chain transactions, and might say next maybe you'd like a cat NFT, just as an example. All of that is hashed as well. So when we write to the blockchain, we write what app is someone using. What's the action they're taking inside that app and who are they? But we hash the information on what app and what action they're taking. So to general consumers, they won't be able to interpret and understand what that means, but if someone wants to come along and build their own user permissioning or their own user persona system on top of us, then at the point where we've proven out the proof of concept, we've open sourced what all this hashing, and we've let someone build that user permissioning system, I mean that user persona system, then they can do that. So it's private in that sense. As far as private of the actual images and stuff or videos, like because it's encrypted with your blockchain, your wallet, only you can see it, which means it's, it's instantly private and you can share it with a couple others.
0: Which storage solution are you guys using? Because I know that there's IPFS, there's have and Nier recently announced our own native storage solution. I believe it's called Makina, M-A-C-H-I-N-A. So I'm really curious to know what storage options are out there and what you guys are using?
1: Honestly, we're using none of the above. We are creating our own, where by putting all of those file locations on the blockchain and hashing them, we have the ability for someone to read the blockchain and spin up a proxy server that will redirect when someone asks for that hash to where it's actually stored. This allows you to store anywhere. Right now, we're storing it all in one central location, but we're storing it based on pointing to specific URLs, which means in the future, whether you want to store it on AWS, your Google Drive, or even your own local host computer, you'll be able to point on chain that hash to a specific URL that you control and store it in that location, allowing for decentralized storage across different devices.
0: Interesting. And I'm guessing that as you guys. Prove this out and make it open source. These will all be well documented for people to go out and learn how to do it or even learn how to compare whether they use this or whether the current stack
1: is using something else and they can mix and match. For sure. Everything that we're building, the goal is to open source it. So we're, we're keeping them private while we prove case studies and we make sure that they're safe and secure on the blockchain so that we can be good custodians of the near ecosystem. And then as we perfect them, We're actually going to be hosting a conference in July, Generation Crypto Part 2, completely different than Generation Crypto Part 1, with all of the tools that we're building. That conference will be the highlight point of when we are open sourcing everything as a three-day educational uh, series for everyone to understand those open source components, followed by a two-week hackathon where we. the goal was that by the end of the hackathon, you've spent the first couple of days using our open source solutions to build your own app. And you've spent the rest of the time acquiring actual users, so that we can judge people across different categories, like who actually got the most retained users in two weeks. Except. Sir, sign me up. I'm down. Is it going
0: to be physical or hybrid?
1: Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be virtual. So we're looking at platforms like uh, Gather Town or something. I think we're probably going to use Gather Town so that we can okay. host the event. And then the other goal is that all of these softwares that we use in conjunction with Gather Town. Will be the tools that we're actually building so we're build, yeah when you talk through looking at the other things we're building like a calendly competitor so that you can set up meetings with different people at different booths during the event to meet the weekend after or with the the judges or mentors for the hackathon we're setting up a mailer which is it eliminates emails but it's a system where you can send messages directly to wallets but only if you've given permission to a wallet to eliminate spam and get something, get a message right inside of homepage, which is our you know central ecosystem where you've got all the apps you can see. You've also got a messaging system and a notification system, etc.
0: I, I love it. We're going to be diving deeper into these like uh, apps ecosystem. Just really before we move on, if you're taking suggestions, I actually don't know much about Gather Town, but I do know that we've got some near native um, options. Near Hub is shaping up quite nicely. Our reality Chain is shaping up quite nicely. If you're looking for options. Those may be worth checking out.
1: I will. I'll check will. them out. The whole goal is scalability. I was going to use a different software, but it said that they could only handle 400 people. The whole event is we're selling tickets to about 2,000 people. So if it can support 2,000 people all at the same time, let's check it out.
0: If it's in July and we give them that milestone,
1: maybe they can scale it up and have it
0: ready for us by then. But I, I'll send you the links. It'd really briefly be before we move on, I. Usually when I try to sell near to people and anyone that saw me at East Denver know that I spend most of my time nowadays basically recruiting. I'm not technical, which means that I've got more time to go around talking to people, but I do try to draw the point home to builders now and especially founders with ideas. Because some of the trends that I've seen is that if you've got like an ambitious idea, you're a startup, you just go to AWS and you spin up a traditional startup like mm-hmm. up until now we haven't really had the ability to start a blockchain startup and i believe that's changing with near it's very early i know that the tooling is evolving and improving consistently but at least planting the seed in people's mind and we want to be the first place that they go to when they're ready so some of the things that i've been telling people in terms of the user experience that they can build and for me that's key you want to capture their imagination of having the decentralized component and potentially the tokenomics for the product But also being able to actually onboard users and have those viral loops that you've mentioned so everything from the near name account system it is by default human readable i even sometimes get way ahead of myself and i tell them that the dot near what's it called top domain name yeah even that in the future is up for grabs. so hypothetically you could have like dot spotify or dot coca-cola or whatever so it, it really captures people's imagination as to how flexible and how much it can grow. Other things that I mentioned are obviously it being very affordable and scalable. It's like default for me. Things like being able to pre-approve gas and have a bunch of transactions that are on chain, but that on the user interface, it's just like Web 2.0. You click on things and it is recording on chain, but you don't have to interrupt the user flow, have a MetaMask drop down or take them to a separate pop-up browser window so those are the kind of things that i often mention and i don't know if as you guys keep exploring with new applications and new use cases there's anything from that stack that you feel really stands out as far as hitting that sweet spot between a good user experience and uh, the decentralized component
1: you've mentioned a lot of things that i would also mention and this one i think can be done on multiple blockchains but i think is one of the components that is going to help us the most. And it's a retooling of NEAR's NEAR drop system, where you can give people NEAR tokens for taking a specific action. So a lot of the onboarding experiences that I've seen previously have been people saying, here's 20 bucks, go use my ecosystem. And most people pocket the cash instead of actually using the ecosystem. But what I love from what Nier has made available previously is the ability to retool that Nier drop where you click a link and you get a small amount of Nier to come after someone taking a specific action. There's two components. One, Nier made it really easy for us to pay gas on behalf of users. So we can essentially give someone a free trial by paying for their gas up until the point that they do exactly what the action we want them to do and then reward them for taking that action.
0: Yeah, that's actually massive. One of the first apps uh, that I used and that I've been using consistently since, uh, it's nearnames.com. And I like it because it actually does two things very well. The first one is it makes it very easy to onboard new people. And the second one is that through that onboarding process, it actually basically shows off how powerful the network is. So for those that are not familiar, nearnames enables you to plug in, reserve a username for other people, preloaded with near and you send them a link, I often email it to them so that they can retrieve it whenever it is convenient for them and it's safe to do so. Then and only then do they get the private keys for that account. So basically that modularity of being able to play around with the order of actions in which you would have normally been forced to do it in a traditional way, it's extremely powerful.
1: Giving private keys also, I think that's another thing that people don't mention a lot, but is super powerful is the ability on your to rotate private keys. Michael Kelly used to talk about all this time, this idea of a spaceport where you come in as a, a consumer who knows nothing about crypto, you want someone to really protect you and teach you, but then you want the point where you can inject from the spaceport and have your own private keys and go from there. So. We at Prime Labs are are doing something similar, which is as a consumer, you don't need to know everything about crypto day one. You could come in, be taught, and then with the rotation of that private keys, go from a centralized system or where someone's holding your hand to complete independence with a single switch.
0: Yeah, the private key rotation was the one thing for me, ever was fascinating because I predict, this is the last year, it's going to be called ETH Denver. I reckon next year it's going to be called like Crypto Denver or something. It was Ethereum, but there were also many other blockchains. Nier had a strong presence. Nier had a strong presence. There was Harmony, there was all the L2s, Arbitrum. And for me, it was an easy because Aurora is EVM compatible. And basically everyone you meet, if they're doing something in EVMs, you basically entice them to expand over to Aurora. There are some grants available if they're building infrastructure especially it, it was an easy segue in there was this one guy building something on ethereum and just having a good time i was sitting on the same table and the one thing that convinced him to basically like look into near and i onboarded him with near names was the private key rotation something about the technicalities of it and him being very security focused like it just like his eyes lead up and he's, wow, they can do that. that.
1: Yeah. The other thing that got me also was that when I first came in and Mike Purvis was like, here's our crossword puzzle tutorial. I was like, this is so easy. It's, you can put something out there where you pre-fund it. If you discover the private key, you get the solution to it. But I don't have to actually know crypto to uh, participate in this. It's just a, a Web2 interface that I learn at the end about it. I can put in all of my numbers. I can put in all of my answers. And it's not until the end that I actually have to make a wallet. I get that money uh, for winning and it goes from there. Yeah. Shout
0: out to Mike Purvis. He is an absolute legend. I, I haven't been able to have him in the podcast because he's very busy. But one of the things that I really admire from him is that even though he's like on the proper engineering side, he's devoted an insane amount of time to, I guess, education and documentation. And this is on top of the education team, which is also doing a lot. We may be slightly misleading people with things like Prime Lab because we're really trying to shorten people's time to development. But if you are a developer or an actual engineer, the resources to start from scratch are also there. Does that make sense? It,
1: it, it's two angles, sure. If you wanna be a crypto maximalist, crypto native, start from the bottom up. If you wanna prove the value of your business and you want to have enough users that you can support yourself and then go deeper and deeper, Then tools like Prime Labs, where you can make your app in five minutes instead of five months, lets you prove the idea before you go on. I think a a large problem that's throughout all technology is people being really enamored by solving a technological problem without first asking, who wants this? Does someone actually want it? The 80-20 rule is so real. 80% of the ideas that you think are great, no one is going to care about. So how do you discover those very quickly, whether or not people care, whether or not it provides enough value, and then dive in? That's where, if you want to program the blockchain, you can, but it's a couple of layers of the onion deeper so that you can answer that question first.
0: That's why I really like Prime Lab. It really resonated with me because I know the most basic Python. And in a former life, I was a lawyer. Legal training it's fascinating because it's all about problem solving. Now, it's problem solving in a very antiquated way, it's all pen and paper, and you analyze things in a very abstract way. But once you learn to see the world through those like risk assessment lenses, and it's a very methodical way of working through layers and steps and and questions, because that's something that people often do. You may have a very complex situation and people focus anywhere on the stack. And that's the only thing that they can see. And I think that a lot of the problems that we have in society is that they've got a complex situation with two people focusing on two valid points. They're just like not considering the other one. So anyway, long story short. The problem-solving framework, once you focus it on technology, inevitably lends itself to have you thinking about new products and new solutions and new services constantly. And what you find is it's very hard to actually get started because, as you said, if you start with a stack from scratch, you either need to know a lot more about technology and spend a lot more time building. And let's be honest, the time you spend building, it's actually a distraction from the time you should be spending thinking about it as a business. So I ran into the no-code space about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, and I loved it. I did all the bubble tutorials. I joined the Indie Hackers movement, 100 Days of No-Code. And it's actually empowering to be able to build things. And sure, when I talk to real developers, these are basic applications. But it's really good to start getting even just like the logical flow and understand how the different pieces come together. And every time you hit a wall, then you understand, okay, this is where the next thing comes in. Like before I couldn't tell you much about databases and how different things talk to each other. And now I can more proficiently use something like Zapier and integramat and understand when you need data and when you don't and integrate different applications
1: i see that what we're building is in slices so integra or app here where you build your different components our whole idea is anytime you either hit the blockchain with a user permissioning change or you need to store data that is a slice and those slices can go together so while you said they're basic apps really what we've built in the nft maker app in the cloud storage app Hasn't been two really basic apps. It's been more like about 12 slices and those slices could be mixed and matched in any order that you want. As long as you have a template that says, here's how you come into it. Here's how the main navigation bar can go. And then you can pick which slice it goes to next. Then you can put those together into more and more complex things.
0: I'd love to ask you if you want to start thinking about how is prime lab different or what are you guys doing that perhaps other teams have not been doing or that they should be looking at implementing. Some of the app building processes, I know that you're using some internal teams, some external teams. And I guess that the key question would be the tension between having a founder led application, I'm assuming a lot of these applications would be standalone projects like into the future that would each require a dedicated team hustling 24 seven. And yeah, having more of a venture shop, building the core components for somebody else to take on. And maybe even, I don't know if you've thought about open sourcing everything, but then also handing over the projects to the community for that founder type leader to take it on board or something like that.
1: These are all questions that I want to answer. I just wanted to say straight up though, we've been going for an hour. I actually have an hour of meetings right now. Oh, no, this in an hour. I thought this was an hour. Yes.
0: Well, absolutely. Yes. I normally tell people to have half an hour leeway, but we oh. can definitely keep going afterwards. So this is going to be a smooth transition. Do you remember the questions?
1: No, I did not report the questions.
0: That's fine. We, we can very briefly recap and then I'll edit some out just to make it smooth. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So moving on to a bit of a rapid fire question section, I am really curious to hear your perspective on. I guess I'm really curious to learn about the process of developing these applications, the constitution between Prime Lab and internal dev team and external dev agencies. And yeah, then we can start diving a little bit deeper on some of the processes
1: or. Okay, I opened up a Google Drive because I expected to like have to write down six questions, internal versus external. Awesome. Let's talk about the composition of Prime Lab. So our ethos at Prime Lab is that everything that we build is going to have to be used by open source uh, developers. So what is an entrepreneur going to do when they come in and they want to build on top of us? They're going to look at our modules. They're going to have to go hire a freelancer and they're going to say, this is what I want to build. Can you help me? So we're proving out that's possible by doing the exact same thing. Our entire team at Prime Lab has been hired through freelance Upwork, uh, freelancer.com type agency websites so that we can prove that taking general, general consumers, general developers talent off the internet that is not blockchain related and training them to be blockchain related is possible for anyone. Instead of having to pull from these small talent pools of people that know Rust, that know blockchain previously, who tend to charge a much higher fee as well. We can transition people from the Web2 world into Web3 and do the same thing. So currently we're a team of about 135 people. All of those developers we've hired through Upwork. We've hired our managers by promoting internally from the best among us. And we've hired, yeah, a bunch of different teams. So we have our recruiting team, our blockchain teams, our Node.js team, our front-end teams. And those have all been hired through those freelancing platforms.
0: That's fascinating. In terms of transitioning people from Web2 to Web3, have you guys been going through the near education and near university pathways? Certified near developer bootcamp.
1: Yes, and so that so the certified near developer bootcamp is all about writing smart contracts. So we have taken those courses and given those as a starting point to our developers to say, "Here, go study this." But there's about nine other pieces that go into writing to the blockchain. That don't have courses for them yet these are creating archival nodes indexers rpc endpoints just like general knowledge on what is a DAO, what is a wallet all the different pieces that go into from the front end to the back end where if contracts is like the very end of the line hitting the blockchain and a front end is the very front you don't realize but the front end speaks to the blockchain through all of these different layers and then it has to come back from the blockchain so even coming back from the blockchain we have to create an ETL pipeline. So we index the blockchain, but then we have to make sense of all that indexer data such that a website can quickly say, yes, you have permission or no, you don't have permission. That'll be verified by the block, but we need those really quick uh, lookups and we need to train people on all of those. So we're creating our own courses internally. That'll be something that's also part of Generation Crypto where anyone who's coming will have access to those courses. And then we'll continue to work with the Near Foundation and the Near Certified Developers and education through Sharif to get him, in addition to what he has, all the content that we're producing.
0: I love it. I I did the figment learn would have been around this time last year. I know that it was just late enough that the near rewards incentives were no longer there. That's what you may call passion and enjoying the journey and the learning. I didn't get any rewards and I wasn't really planning on building anything. I was just a really curious to understand how everything worked. And I love that with my basic understanding, now I'm able to talk about like CLI or like when RPC nodes are congested, I understand. Ref now has their own RPC nodes and the core concepts that I think it's good for everyone to have. And I'm really happy to hear that you guys are working on your courses as well. I know that there's like a proliferation of education providers now. New University would be one, there's Figment Learn, there's the ENCODE Club. And I guess the more the merit, every time I talk to somebody on my Twitter space and they're like a new dev, like learning or building, I'm like, please document everything that you're doing and just share it with people. I, I think it's very easy to underestimate how many people are going through the same journey and we can really shorten those cycles of learning by just
1: publishing everything. For sure. And then also just to open source as much as possible. So that instead of a few select people being able to help you do something, the more and more distributed it is, more you can just pick it up and the ecosystem can expand because now anyone can do it.
0: Nice. My next question is about the tension between like a founder-led project. Usually you have somebody with a very strong vision. They're very well, they're very familiar with a problem. They may have experienced it themselves. They may have some industry expertise. And usually they build a team to just go full hog into it. And the tension between being more of a, I guess, like an agency or a generalist approach. And you may say perhaps with a focus on building infrastructure and potentially the midpoint between the two being if it's going to be open sourced, perhaps these applications that you guys are launching could be the starting point of a relationship and then the community can take over from there. Or how do you see
1: that, especially over the next six to 12 months once these are out in the wild? For sure. So, how I see this, is, it goes back to our previous conversation about having the education and the know-how to build something. In the founder-led approach, every single founder has to jump through all the same hoops that every other founder has to. They have to get up to speed. And before they can develop their product, they first have to learn how the entire ecosystem exists and what all the different pieces are in that ecosystem. How we're coming at this is we very much have different departments that are experts on each part of that ecosystem. And we've taken it from a one founder pushing one product forward to an entire team, a pipeline of products that can go out very quickly. The contract team does all the contracts. The front end team does all the front end. And the founders are really the operations managers that understand from the idea. So we'll take a lot of ideas and just say, operations manager, here's the idea. Go talk to each one of these different teams about what they're experts in. On what it's gonna take to get this in the hands of users so that they can try. So we're really very much taking that approach so that we can test as many ideas as possible. The 80-20 rule is completely true, where 80% of the things that you build might get some adoption, but it's not gonna get overwhelming success. The 20% will get overwhelming success. So how can we make it so that found we're just like stepping back in Silicon Valley? There's a lot of founders who like they're married to their baby, like their idea. And they can't let it go to move on to a better idea so how do we abstract those ideas from the individuals so that we can test which ones will be the most successful and then we can take internal teams product teams whoever is going to be the support that's going to take one of those successful products and make it even more successful and then they become the founders of that product Uh, once we've proven out an initial you know million or two users on it they can take it further also once we've proven it out that people actually want this It'll be open sourced. So at that point, when you talk about the community can come in, take that open source project and build whatever version of it that they want. They already know that all the components that comprise it are, are working smoothly in a, a well tuned engine and they can change the front end to be a better user experience or whatever they want. So they can also be the founders in making it open source. You create this perfect competition where even if we built the first iteration of the product, we still have to be the best. So that people still use our application, because if anyone else can build it, then if they make an improvement, all of our users will be drained to whatever that app is, which we encourage because it'll further the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, that's what I was trying to get to. I'm trying to understand whether Prime Lab would be like an alphabet umbrella company that has specific products that are meant to be standalone products. There will be revenue, there will be growth. Once users get onboarded, they can expect it to be a self-sustainable long-term thing. Or whether Prime Lab is more of a I guess like a growth lab, maybe you could look at as a as an infra play. And maybe the business model, it's let's de-risk all this venture. As we learn, there will be education, there will be open source tools for people to take on board. And that because of the growth, it would represent to the ecosystem as a whole. It can get different different sources of grants. W- which way do you see the...
1: I see it more as an alphabet. It's more of a, here's the umbrella, here's all of the tools. And these individual products, they don't need to be spun out. Where the ecosystems and everything that's happened cur- currently is, okay, like... You can take your baby steps, spin out. A lot of the spin outs find that they still need the infrastructure, the help to actually get to the next step. So, for more of an alphabet where it's you're under this umbrella, here's an internal team, but you still have, here's an internal team that's dedicated to one project, but you still have all of the resources that were able to get this product off the ground. So, if you need to rely on those resources, we can take it even farther. Then that's how I see it, as though alphabet also open sourced everything they were doing. So someone else without those without that support could do it themselves the apis that we're making which are that foundation will can be used by anyone so that anyone has that same support and the goal is to document those so well that even without needing to talk to someone internally you would still be able to build on top of the platform with the same level of support
0: so hypothetically for all the eager investors out there in the community Hypothetically, as these products shape up and they hate product market feet and they become standalone babies that break off and start running into success, do you foresee that these products will have a token or that they will be raising private money? Are there opportunities out there for people to get involved
1: in that capacity? Where are you at now and how can we help? This is all under discussion. So I I promise nothing, but everything's on the table. Yeah, each one of these products could be a standalone product that breaks off and raises its own money. Each one could have its own token created through the near token farm or the near ecosystem. They could open source and decide that they're going to use another token. So really it's the best ecosystem wins. If these products can sit on top of multiple blockchains, then it's the blockchain that has the best resources, the best infrastructure, the best token to enable the use cases that will win.
0: Next question. And perhaps this will also bring some clarity as to the the structure and the nature of the venture, how would. Prime Lab compare or be different from Pagoda. I know that Pagoda has been moving from Near Inc., building all the mainnet infra, to now being more of a Web3 startup agency or incubator to enable founders to build faster and to make sure that all the pieces that are required to simulate the Web2 experience come into existence.
1: Great question. I would say, so Pagoda in what it's turned into currently is more of an agency where you hire Pagoda to build things for you. Our goal is to monetize through ad networks, through telling people which types of different apps they can use while open sourcing absolutely everything that we build. So that anyone can build on top of it so really both serve the near ecosystem they just use two different methods of doing it we are building a lot of the same things as pagoda they're building faster rpc nodes we're building faster rpc nodes so it is really we're both working the same direction on different approaches to see who can help the near foundation and the near ecosystem grow the fastest
0: i love it i think competition is very healthy in an ecosystem which brings to my next question if there are people out there that they think or they're interested in doing something similar, perhaps have a bunch of ideas. Maybe they've got uh, teams capable of building. The first of question is, are you guys hiring and what are you looking for? But also do you have any advice or tips for people like as such as yourself that are able to execute and yeah, how to get involved in your ecosystem?
1: Sure, so what are we looking for? I say this to everyone that we hire, we're looking for three things. People who take these tenants in mind, communication, action, and execution. So if you communicate well, we're all about an ecosystem, like we are a startup. You can't act like a large organization like a Facebook or Google at this point. You have to move fast, you have to break things. So you need to communicate what is possible. If you're gonna miss a deadline, we should never miss deadlines because we don't communicate because we should be able to give you the resources you need to make sure that we can put a plan B, a plan C in place and still get there. Taking action, we're looking for people who, if I'm working on a couple of different projects with different teams, I may not always be there to give the vision direction of exactly what should be done. I would rather have you do something that's 80% on your own than wait for a a direct answer. Everything that we create will only ever really be 80% defined because these are proof of concepts to prove markets and prove that people want these specific apps where we're creating. Once we've proven those apps, then like you said, spinning off and creating uh, those companies, that's when you take that out from 80% to 100. So people who can move quickly, work with each other and communicate to get stuff out the door. The last one is execution. Is actually just being great at your job and being able to do it. But if you can communicate and if you can take action, execution can always be taught through the education programs we have, etc. Are we hiring? Yes, we're constantly hiring people for different capabilities because we do work with freelancers a lot. Some people stay for a week. Some people will probably stay for years, but we're constantly looking for people that want to prove themselves and join the team. And if they have a skill set that we're looking for, that augments our blockchain team, really, or any of them, I guess I can go into the exact stack. In order to scale, you have to not use that many technologies so that you can, everything's modular and interchangeable. So, as far as blockchain, all of the blockchain developers that we're hiring, uh, new C or Go or something previously, and we're transitioning them to Rust and Near. All of the backend developers, everything is serverless Node.js, Lambda functions, so that everyone we hire with that skill set who knows AWS, who knows how other serverless uh, functions work, can immediately work together. All of our front ends are React for the same reason. And then everything on mobile is React Native so that we can go across Android and and Apple and hit as many services as possible for general consumers. So if you know someone with one of those skill sets or someone willing to learn one of those, yes, we're always willing to talk.
0: Nice. What about creative people? So in terms of like building brands, telling stories around the products, I'm probably more on the go-to market side of the equation. Are you at that stage yet or? When would be a good time for people to get involved? And I guess how to stay up to date with the latest developments?
1: Sure. So one, everything we were posting will be on primelab.io. So we have two apps there currently, and we'll be having more and more come out there. You can also look at our YouTube channel where we'll be posting walkthroughs and a bunch of other stuff about our apps and our Twitter account, which is at primelab4. So that was how to stay up to date. What was the other question? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> okay,
0: it was how to stay up to date, and whether you'd be looking at hiring more creative people oh, in terms of like right. building brands and yeah, just marketing in general, storytelling around the products. And
1: yes, we work with a couple of different marketing agencies. So um, marketing is really all about relationships. So hiring individuals, we do less so than hiring agencies. Because marketing is an experimentation. You don't know exactly which channel is going to work for which product. So you hire people who are experts at a specific channel to get a specific product out there. And then for the next one, you might hire someone else for their relationships to get the next one out. Currently, we work with a business development agency and a marketing agency and now a video agency that are making creatives to put across the Twitters and YouTubes of the world. And then also we believe very specifically in growth specific campaigns. You can put stuff out there on social media, but some of the best campaigns and and there's 19 traction channels. Like I come from a marketing background, have nothing to do with social media, ad networks and print ads and all these other things that no one thinks about. Like, Maybe not those specifically, but we work specifically with experimenting across all those channels to see which will be the most successful. And for those
0: who are interested, I believe you may be referring to Traction by Gabriel Weinberg. It's an excellent book that looks into how different startups can approach marketing and growth. And I I quite like that approach because basically they say, first, never pay for growth that was going to happen anyway. Hold back the funds and exhaust that initial wave of early adopters people that were already going to subscribe to your product. And then second, you start iterating between channels. He's got uh, systems and frameworks there. I think one is called the bullseye. I find it really useful and fascinating. I read it back in 2016 or 2017, and I've actually gifted it to 10 different people, including my sister, which uh, she never read, and the book got lost when she moved houses, but not pointing fingers here.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's still up, but I loved a website called Winning by Design. I don't know if they took a lot of the stuff out of that book. I never actually read that book, but I've read a lot of stuff around track channels. They had amazing articles. I think they privatized it so that they could actually sell their knowledge because it was so valuable that they were giving it away for free.
0: Now we've got two resources. I'll make sure I put them on the footnotes. Ross, I've got a question. Even though we are building products and we shouldn't care or be distracted by price, I think Nier has a very unique problem, which is... By abstracting the blockchain complexity out of a real product with real users, we may also be abstracting perhaps the drivers that fuel growth, at least in terms of the price of the token. And it's not really about the price making money-wise, but I'm thinking more about, say, securing the network. If there is a disconnect between the number of users joining the network and the number of users that know they are near and perhaps want to buy some and stake some, Could there be any risks in the long term around the security of the network, or is this a challenge that can be breached in some other way? Perhaps we communicate the growth of the real applications with the real users to the more crypto-native people who will ape in and throw their life savings at it. Are are there any thoughts that you've had on that area?
1: So... By giving people free trials and allowing them to use the network without paying gas, like that's one portion of it. But that doesn't remove the fact that tokens will be used in other apps on the network. So allowing someone to get up, see the critical value and decide they want to pay for something. I don't. So the answer is no, because just price aside, we're not allowed to talk about that. But like token usage, let's say we have an ad network where you want to give small amounts of token to everyone who clicks on your ad. You still have to have the tokens in order to give those away. So that creates a use case for those tokens. Let's say that you want to buy decentralized storage for all of your NFTs. Like it requires to be paid in tokens. Um, but you can still store a couple of those NFTs without paying anything so that you can see the value of it by the time you get to that point. So that does put pressure on a lot of people needing those tokens for actual use cases.
0: I always like to see teams and projects have some skin in the game. So I don't know if you've thought, or, or, or I'd love to know your thoughts on teams and projects uh, doing some staking, just to contribute towards the security of the network. And I guess whether some of that contribution should be proportional to the number of users that they're putting through. Obviously, the interests are very much aligned, but I'm thinking whether at some point as the network grows, there may be a bit of a free rider problem.
1: There, There is some interesting tokenomics with Nier where gas is burnt and then a separate amount of gas is actually, or a separate amount of inflation is actually given to the people that are staking tokens. So there's some like separation between who is actually driving the most traffic that should have the most token be paying for that gas and who's actually receiving that inflation bonus. Yes, there's some stuff to figure out there. I won't dive too deep into that, but I have talked to a bunch of node operators in the network. I did an AMA last week, so I've talked with them a lot. And a That'd lot the, of them are. Was the, it recorded? Because we we can link it in the. It, it was well. recorded. Gotcha. They are. There are many that are of the uh, belief that every single project should run its own node, not only so that you can have skin in the game, but so that you can write the blockchain faster. Like the top transaction speed of a blockchain has to do with its core technology. It also has to do just a lot with internet speeds and who is running that node on the blockchain, if it's your closest to it, you have your RPC nodes, then you can build products that scale. So any app that wants to build a, a product with millions of users, it's really in their best uh, interest not only to have their own RPC nodes, but to have their own node on the exact blockchain.
0: For those who are interested, I'm gonna to try to find the link and share it. Near has 5% inflation per year that goes towards uh, validator nodes and 70% of every transaction, uh, the cost of the transaction, the gas gets burned. The other 30% goes towards the contract Contract. developers, which is a fascinating little potential way to have some extra revenue. There is a chart that I've got in mind in that article I'm going to try to find where it basically maps out how many transactions per day for the network to become deflationary. I think at a billion transactions per day, it becomes deflationary. However, I think that once you account for how much near is locked into nodes and whatnot, you would probably get to a deflationary network much sooner. So yeah, I, I love that perspective. I, I never thought about it that way that you could actually split the people whose role is to secure the network and they lock funds and they get some rewards. And maybe there are projects that they say, hey, our role is to bring users and we're actually burning gas. and The two balance each other out. I think it also makes a lot of sense that if you are a high maintenance application, you've run your own node. That's yet another consideration. I only learned recently how because of the speed of internet and the distance between nodes, you may actually end up with centralization anyway because all the nodes want to be in the same region. And that presents some serious challenges. So I'm going to trust the big brains on that one. (laughs) It gets a little bit technical for me. But a lot, I love that you've already been thinking about it with your team.
1: Well, what's interesting about the deflationary part of it is we've actually, last week when we launched the NFT maker app and we got, we were the fastest growing app on Radar. They want to do an interview about us just for that exact thing. We spent so much near on gas. We actually, for those couple of days made near deflationary because we were burning more gas than it was creating. Um, and it has to do not only with the number of transactions, but what those transactions are. If those transactions are NFT and storing near, et cetera, that is much more expensive. The other interesting fact about near is you can actually change the, the cost of a transaction, which means that it, it might be deflationary at this point around, let's say, onboarding a million users a day. But if you want in the future and you find that it's becoming too deflationary and you're still rewarding, it's called validator nodes with the same amount, you could half what the gas fee is to make sure that it stays stable
0: yes thanks so much for bringing in that variable which is actually very important and i had forgotten but i, I was somewhere in the back of my mind yes the, the one billion transactions per day assumes it's like basic token transfers once you start having more complex contract interactions it definitely brings it down a fair bit Sir, congratulations on the recent application and its massive growth I hope that the negotiations go well and it is back online. I would like to know if it's not extremely hard for you, which I know it will be, to share with us maybe the next five or 10 applications hitting the market. And yeah, I guess what would be, if, if you have information from the research data, what would be like the salient
1: features or needs that the users are after that Nier is able to serve well? The most interesting thing about those 160 apps, I know you're smiling because you're like, ah, oh, super hard question. The most
0: interesting oh, I'm, thing I'm smiling because I cheated and I've got a list of the applications that I know you're building and I like, but I'm going to give you a chance to see if we overlap. <laughs> I'll mention mine
1: afterwards. Gotcha, okay. From the 160 apps that we launched in that we, not that we launched, that we tested in front of 250,000 people, I expected most of them to fall into specific categories. Seven of the top 10 would be NFT marketplaces. That was not the case at all. They were all very different from each other, which gave us the idea that people are looking for an ecosystem of experiences. They're not looking for one thing out of crypto. What we've launched already is the NFT app. Uh, it's an app to get a bunch of people into the ecosystem to make NFTs. Uh, NFTs are like the hot commodity. Everyone wants to know what they are. They've heard of them. They don't know. The next app that we're launching is that Web3 cloud. That is because we have a default private file system on everything we're building. That will be a place where across all of your apps, you can see all of your files in one place. It is the IPFS on here, the whatever you want to call it, that allows you to store decentralized. The next app that we have after that is homepage. So every ecosystem needs its iPhone. You have an app, apps have 3% retention rates. This would be like a calculator. Maybe you use it, but you don't really come back to it. A platform has a 20% retention rate. This would be your homepage. This is where you can see all of the different apps in the ecosystem. And when you're done using one of them, you can be exposed to the next. Ecosystems have a 60% retention rate. This is if you had multiple iPhones, you have the Android store, which can be reskinned multiple different ways. It's all of the same apps, but it's choose the store that you want that has all of the, the country music or the rap music in it, whatever you want. So that's how we think about getting people back in. Because it's all built as Slices, you can also have in that homepage, like the shortcuts app for the iPhone, where maybe you can trade NFTs in a marketplace like Props. But you can mint a new NFT using the Paras shortcut inside of homepage, which draws people back in to discover new experiences. After homepage, we have verified contacts is next. Verified contacts is the idea. We want everything to be very shareable. So that's the reason that we're doing it. Two is I'm sure that you have a lot of uh, phone numbers in your phone that like, don't mean anything anymore. You don't even know who these people are because it was from college and you forget who they are. Verified Contacts is the idea that you're sending out a request to say, can I always have your most up-to-date contact information? And if the person says yes, then inside of that, when you log in, if they ever change their phone number in that decentralized file system, you'll always have access to their most recent information, but you have to be given permission. After that, we have a suite of tools coming out. So an, an image editor, a video editor, all stored in that cloud to prove that we can make business tools Businesses want to use. There will also be a business version of homepage, which allows multiple people to work in a DAO like uh, setting on these videos, on sending uh mail or, or account through something like a MailChimp that eliminates email, that sends it to people's wallet, and many more. Uh, I would love to hear your favorites because I can't talk about all of them.
0: i I quite like the idea of the decentralized password manager. I think that nowadays. <laughs> Every so often I read a tweet about, I cannot believe it's 2022 and people are still not using password managers. So I think that we're getting closer to the point of internet security where people accept that they shouldn't be using the same password everywhere. And especially the same password from like 2010. But then the next question is which password manager should I use? And obviously most users like my mom, she's like, well, is it really more secure to give all my passwords? to a centralized private company that just raised a hundred million dollars in its funding or just use the same password everywhere. And it's written on a notepad in my bedroom. Look, I'm not saying that my mom's approach is correct. I just think that her concern about who has access to her passwords, is a valid one. So the next step of it being decentralized makes sense. I know that Bitwarden is one that people recommend in that context. But I think that if you look at the ecosystem approach could be something that, well, if I'm already using any other tool in the ecosystem, it's very easy to just keep adding to it. Especially when you look at those early adopters wanting to just promote adoption. It's something that I would use personally. Ideas like the homepage, I love them because they're new. They're novel. I haven't thought about them. I'm going to have to demo them to get the, the flavor of it. But I like where it's going. When you mention it, the first thing that comes to mind, and another we've talked about this briefly during one of the Growth Guild calls, may have been the only call that I joined because it was 4 in the, the morning for me. Uh, it's the Blockstack Liquidity Mining Program from back in 2018. Pretty sure the page is still up. They had like a homepage, say like, like an app store with all the applications developed in Blockstack. And then the foundation had incentives for the app developers. Where they received tokens in proportion to the number of users that they had, and they had some criteria like the design of the application. You know, so they actually assess if it's a real product and, and how good the experience is. And I think some of the other criteria were like how many components in the ecosystem you integrated. So obviously, if you had an application that used decentralized storage, you'd get more money over an application that was a hybrid, and maybe didn't really leverage the ecosystem. Inevitably, the program had some issues maybe it yeah i don't i can't really speak as to what the issues were but i think that overall that notion of rewarding people by bringing in real users and by tying more closely the funding with the actual end user and if you focus on policing them and improving the experience and getting more you get more money i thought that was really healthy and i know that for a period of time some apps were making five to twenty five K per month, which for a single or like small teams was really good. Since then, the developer of the only app that I really liked, I've onboarded an him to Nier and he's actually launched his application recently. He's doing very well. I'm happy that maybe it's a concept that we could explore. I know that the one funding that specifically, but given that you're gonna have a suite of applications, maybe it could be a good
1: avenue to propose it. For sure. That's part of what we're trying to prove out with the Near Foundation is can you have an app that writes everything to the blockchain your user permissions your files etc and rewards people rewards the apps that are building them with startup capital based on actual usage so when we launched the nft maker app we we had i think we created about two three or four million wallets on year our average user had about eight transactions making nfts can we take those numbers and actually fund businesses off those numbers. There is the whole thing of everything's anonymous. You could have Google Analytics in your website, but do you really wanna set the precedent that every Web3 app, which is supposed to be anonymous and decentralized, et cetera, only gets funding based off of these Web2, these Web2 applications, which actually take a lot of user data, demographics, location, et cetera. Or can we set the precedent that we fund people purely based off of what is on the blockchain which shows uh, that blockchain success? And can we have true Web3 apps where every action is written to the blockchain and it's very easy for DAOs, foundations, et cetera, to point to that on-chain data and say, this app is successful, let's give them more.
0: Yeah, I think in the same way that we've got the challenge or the task we're working on this of setting up new standards for user experience and really paving the way to, for what other people can do, Probably something very similar could be happening in terms of like funding, have it user-based and and adoption-based best of luck. And if there's anything that I can do to further that, let me know. I can also see how there's probably some challenges around if it's all private and on chain, could it be abused? There's some hurdles to overcome. I mean,
1: yes, there are some hurdles to overcome, which is like in general, I think there's this thing where people go millions of users on blockchain. That can't be possible. Whereas some of the least successful apps in the app store might have 500,000 users or a million users. And some of the most successful apps at Wombo get 60,000 users in a month. So while things could be abused, it's okay. How much free trial, how much startup time are you willing to give? And then at what point do we need to monetize this app such that we prove that, um, the app can make back the value that these users are signing up for. Also, how do we get people to sign up in a way that they're signing up for the value of the app? They're not signing up to mine tokens. They're not signing up for free airdrops before they have to do it. All of the users that sign up for the Prime Labs ecosystem, they get nothing. They they don't get tokens beforehand. The NFTs, they get access to the NFTs after they've had about five or six transactions. You just have to make the barrier high enough that it's not it's not worth signing up unless you're actually signing up for the experience.
0: Ross, I really value your time and know that you're a very busy man managing a team of 135 plus. So really rapid fire question. Where are you now in the world and where will you be in the near future? Are you a digital nomad? I, I had a question down about the LA Hacker House you were proud of, but I guess we might have time to go into that.
1: Sure, yeah. I, I was a digital nomad all last year. I lived in LA at that Hacker House where I met Eric. So that started off my whole year foundation experience. I lived in... Um, Austin, Texas this year with the Ants Guild, with Michael Kelly, amazing community guy, taught me half of what I know about the near blockchain. I lived in uh, Phoenix, Arizona for part of this year. And now, right now, I'm in Connecticut. I came to Connecticut expecting to stay for a couple months. And with this whole thing exploding, I have not stood up for my desk. Got to put in those 16-hour days. and There's no time at the end. I'm planning to move. My goal would be ultimately to end up in Austin, Texas again. Uh, I think there's a great, vibrant community there. Everyone's very positive, outgoing. Everything's outside. And yeah, so that's where I hope to end up.
0: Nice. If you were interested, Reen and I are in very early talks about setting up a hacker house in somewhere in Europe, most likely Portugal. We'll both be descending there sometime during summer. So the invitation is open. Next question. Do you have any books that you've read recently that you would recommend to people or any favorite movies that have left uh, a longstanding impression on you? any messages you'd like to share with people?
1: I think my favorite book that I read this year was all about leadership. Uh, I think I started off with Jocko's 10 Principles of Leadership, which talks all about teams and communication, which is almost like so much more important than what you're building, is making sure that you can actually communicate well and lead by example, etc. So that was my favorite. And then from there, I went down the whole like Jocko, David Goggins route of Just like David Goggins, like pure persistence, et cetera, and leadership principles. It's coming very handy with this whole expedition of 135 people and making sure that they're not only building the right things, but they have the right communication structures with each other. And you can put leaders in place on each team that really follow those principles. So I think that's my favorite.
0: So you you would recommend them to people? You feel like they actually make a difference in the way that you approach day-to-day tasks and we would be better off as a
1: society if more of us read those books? I do. I would, so to start, I would just start with Jocko's 10 Principles of Leadership. I literally, when I lived in Austin and Arizona this year, I went on runs all the time and I listened to those books, I think three times each back-to-back while running. The trick to running very long distances is you don't listen to high, like fast-paced music you listen to books that make you think and then all of a sudden 10 miles have gone by and you go I'm still running I completely zoned out yes I would definitely recommend them
0: I love it that was an amazing tip both for digesting more books and staying fit and healthy yes (laughs) Ross thanks so much for your time I know that we went
1: over time like grossly so I really appreciate it you're welcome thank you so much for having me on the show and looking forward to see what you publish next